something. All right, amen. Thank you. We're continuing our BFO series. Uh, if you wasn't here for the last several weeks, I spoke about what it means to be filled. That was the first sermon I did on this series. The second was be filled part two, sanctification. That sanctification leads into holiness. Uh, Be filled part three, a spirit filled mind. Be filled part four, a spirit filled family. And today we're going to talk about what it means to be a spirit-filled church. And the reason why we're discussing this is because we want to get a holistic view of what it means to be filled by the Holy Spirit. That every facet of our lives should be touched and controlled under the Holy Spirit. Um, So this is the best way I think we can uh, learn how to be feel, what it means, and how does it apply to our lives. Amen? If you think about church planting, what are the first things that comes to your mind? There are several models that I'm aware of when it comes to church planting. And every church ministry, leadership team, or outreach team, they have their models of what they think they should do when it comes to church planting. Like, for example, some leadership ministries, uh, leadership teams, they specifically focus on just outreach. Just outreach. Where everything around their ministry is outreaching to the unsaved. And there's nothing wrong with that. Or another church model is the teaching model, where someone, a a church, will just specifically focus on doctrine, and that will be all. Another church model will be discipleship where the crux of a church, the foundation, foundational principle of that church, will want you to disciple other people. Well, and there's nothing wrong with that as well. But here's a better church model. A church model that I see in our text today in Acts chapter 2. A church model that shows us not only what it means to plant a church, but what it means to be a spirit-filled church. If you are a note-taker, I would like for you to write these down because these are the markers that identify what it means to be a spirit-filled church. There are at least eight markers, eight identifications that mark a spirit-filled church. The first marker is the preaching of the gospel. The second marker is devotion to God's word. 
The third marker is intentional fellowship. Fourth marker is prayer. Fifth marker is godly fear. And the sixth marker is commonality. Uh, And the seventh marker is corporate worship. Corporate worship. And the last one, along with corporate worship, is praising God. That is the eighth marker. What I would like to do is bring your attention to Acts chapter 2. And we will see these eight markers within a young church. So please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, verse 37 through 47. I will be reading from the English Standard Version, so please follow along your translation. When you're there, just say amen. Amen. Acts chapter 2, verse 37 through 47. It reads as follows. And they devoted themselves to... Well, now when, verse 37, when now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said, Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Verse 38. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Verse 40. And with many others, words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received the word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and they had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread and and their homes and receiving their foods with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So the first marker of this particular young church plant is the preaching of the gospel. That is the most important marker for any church plant or for any church ministry. That is to say, a spirit-filled church 
is submissive to the preaching of the gospel. If a church desire to be spirit-filled, that church must go to the cross of Christ because at the cross of Christ is the starting point. Everything else rests upon the gospel itself. That includes church ministries, outreach, evangelistic ministries, discipleship. Everything else rests upon the gospel. Like, for example, we can attend many other churches. You can go there and you can participate in the ministries. Could be Sunday school ministry or watching the kids while Sunday service is going on. That really doesn't matter if the gospel is not being preached. So if you're if you ever attend a church where the gospel has not been preached, I suggest to you to run far as you can away from that church. If a church is if a church is not preaching the gospel, that church is an apostate church. This uh, Apostle Paul said it best. By writing a letter to the Galatians, he said, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be a curse. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be a curse. In the words of Paul, a church that is not preaching the gospel is a curse church. It is a church that is born of God himself. In fact, in my humble opinion, we should not even call that church a church, but a religious organization. So, how do we identify a church that is preaching the gospel? Well, we should ask ourselves, is Christ's life and death resurrection has been preached at that church? Christ's life and death and resurrection has been preached. Is that church exalting Christ Jesus as God? Is that church worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ? Does that church use scripture as final authority on life issues? Those are some of the markers that we can Identify when a church is preaching the gospel. To illustrate my point, the Protestant reformers in the 16th century changed the course of Christianity 
from the Catholic Church. Reformers like Martin Luther and John Calvin, they contended with the Catholic Church on fundamental doctrines. Doctrines like the authority of Scripture. That is to say, the Catholic Church is not the final authority, but the Word of God is. The Reformers fought the Catholic Church on doctrine of faith and grace, telling that faith and grace is what saves, not works. The doctrine, the, like the vicar of Christ, that Christ is the mediator between God and man, not the Pope. This is why the Reformers coined five slogans by which we know them as the five solas. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. Solo Fede, Faith alone. Solo Gracia, Grace alone. Solo Christus, Christ alone. Sola de la Gloria, Glory to God alone. Why is this important? This is important because when the Reformers fought the Catholic Church on these doctrines, they were risking their very lives because they saw what the gospel implied. And this is like today. We see the five solas in Peter's sermon. For example, here is Peter's outline in his sermon. In Acts chapter 2, verse 14 through 41, Peter preached the gospel to a large audience on the day of Pentecost. Peter, he preached a long sermonic discourse concerning the crucified Christ. In Acts chapter 2, verse 16 through 21, Peter used the, the authority of Scripture by which he interpreted Joel chapter 2, who prophesied that the Holy Spirit will appear on the day of Pentecost. In verses 22 through 25, Peter pointed out that Jesus of Nazareth was delivered to be crucified, to die on the cross. But on the third day, he will raise from the grave. And lastly, Peter indicted his audience by showing them that they were personally guilty of crucifying Jesus Christ by saying, Therefore, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter preached the gospel. The reformers saw what Peter preached. And the reformers saw the doctrines that Paul supported. After Peter preached the gospel of Christ, the text says that his audience were cut to the heart. His audience were cut to the heart. They were convicted by the gospel of which it made them aware that they were guilty sinners who desperately needed to escape the judgment of God. Only 
This, this only can be done by the power of the gospel. This is why they asked Peter, what shall we do, Peter? In other words, they were saying to Peter, we understand that we are personally responsible for crucifying Jesus Christ. Now tell us, what shall we do? Peter responded by telling them, every one of you, repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is a starting point for this young church. Because as we will see later on in the text, it shows us this church is forming collectively and together. But the starting point was the Holy Spirit coming on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit used Peter's words. Peter preached the gospel, and the gospel was the starting point for that church. Like, for example, I remember uh, Chris and I went to a young church plant. Um, this is prior to we know anything about the gospel. Prior to going to this particular church, we went to a prosperity preaching church where we didn't hear anything about the remission of sins, faith, grace, forgiveness. Didn't hear anything about sanctification until we went to this reformed church. The preachers, they preach through the book of Judges, and as they were preaching through the book of Judges, we realized, that we saw our sins in the characters of judges. And at that very moment, the Holy Spirit convicted us. We got in our car, we looked at each other, and we said, we did not know how much sinners we were. Until the gospel was being preached. That is a starting point for any church ministry. We understand that we, Chris and I understood that we were sinners who needed to be saved from God's wrath. That we needed grace. Later on, a month or two later, we were baptized, confessing uh, faith in Christ, giving a public declaration to all who were there. Do you see? The gospel not only convicts, but it helps people to take personal responsibility. True conversion is those who are convicted by the Holy Spirit, acknowledging their sins, and then running towards repentance by placing their faith and trust in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So, that their sins will be forgiven and then they can live a lifestyle of repentance that demonstrates holiness. A bit different. Living a lifestyle of repentance showing that you are humbly showing yourself to God saying, I am living like a lowly servant. Every church ought to preach the gospel if they desire to grow numerically. This is what Peter accomplished. 
He preached the gospel. The Holy Spirit illuminated his words and 3,000 people joined the Jerusalem church. Peter did not come up with some clever marketing scheme. He did not have church flyers or a church sign in the front to hand out to people saying, come to my church. We invite you all. He did not have revival meetings. Only thing that he had at that particular time was the gospel. And that's what he used. He used the preaching of the gospel to attract people. And I'm not saying that church signs, flyers, revival meetings uh, is not useful. I'm not saying that at all. But they have their limits. It is not what the church is built upon. The gospel message is simple. And its simplicity is what grows a church. You're a sinner. You need to be saved. God came down and incarnate himself in Jesus Christ. Died for you and I. On the third day, rose again. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. He offered you grace and forgiveness. Only thing you have to do is just believe by faith. That is the simplicity of the gospel. You know, I remember a church who had a spontaneous baptism meeting. When a pastor called a lot of people, say, if you want to get baptized, calm down. And a lot of people ran down to be baptized. But the problem with that is it was organized. It was an organized baptism. The second marker that identifies a spirit-filled church is being devoted to God's word. Being devoted to God's word. Look at verse 42. In our test, we take notice that this young church plant saw the importance of being instructed by the word of God. Verse 42 says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. After they were hearing the gospel, after they repented of their sins and was baptized, they wasted no time to start studying God's word. No time. If it was, these were Jewish men, newly converts. It seems as if they were saying to themselves what Job said. Job said this, I have not departed the commandments of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth. My portion, my, my more than my portion of food. So, verse 42 give us two perspectives. One, implicit. The second one, explicit. The explicit and implicit have two meanings. Here it is. The explicit meaning of verse 42 
illustrates that the natural effect for every newborn Christian have a natural yearning to start studying God's word. That's the explicit meaning of verse 42. Like, for example, if you, you and I, before we heard the gospel, we were under the power of Satan and darkness until God called us to his marvelous light by the power of the gospel. And at that very moment, we had a natural yearning for God's, uh, for God's word. The implicit meaning of verse 42 is that after the gospel was preached by Peter, 3,000 or more people became disciples of Christ. After the gospel was preached by Peter, 3,000 people or more was, became disciples of Christ. If you hear, say amen. 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 Um, they wanted to know more about the risen Jesus Christ. One of the fastest ways to, for a church to retain a healthy congregation is not only to preach the gospel, but also to start making disciples. Start making disciples. And tell them to repeat the process. Once the gospel is preached, people are converted, then make disciples. Now that is the implicit meaning of this text. If you have, open, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17, verse 10 through 12. In Acts chapter 17, verse 10 through 12, these verses speaks of the people of Berea. Uh, we know them as the Bereans. Uh, they are a prime example of what it, or what they illustrate of what it means to be devoted to God's word. It says, the story goes as this, when Paul and Silas came to the town of Berea to the noble Jews, at the town, to explain them the gospel of God, it says, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining scripture daily to see if these things were so. So, in other words, when the gospel was then preached, when Paul preached the gospel to the people of Berea, they went back to make sure that what Paul was saying was true. Amen? Question. Um, how many of us can fully explain scripture to an unsaved person? How many of us can... Explain the doctrines of Scripture. What does it mean to uh, 
for Christ to be 100% man and 100% God. And the reason I'm bringing this up because it reminds me of me witnessing to a Jehovah, uh, Jehovah Witness. Where we have coffee every uh, Thursday and I'm just witnessing to him. And I'm trying to explain to him the truth. See, the Bereans, they, they went back and they dealt with scripture to reason among themselves. See, Psalms 119 says this when it comes to God's word. Because we should have a natural yearning for God's word. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies. For it is ever with me i have no i have more understanding than all my teachers for your testimonies are my meditation i understand more than the age for i keep your precepts i hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word i do not turn aside from your rules for you have taught me how sweet than honey to my mouth. Though your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. That is the natural yearning to be devoted to God's word. That we are setting priority of God's word over everything else. And this is what this newly young church plant did. After the gospel was preached, they wanted to understand scripture. They were coming from a Jewish background, so they had a monotheistic view of God. Instead of a Trinitarianismistic view of God. The writer, a theologian and a writer... R.C. Sproul said this. There is no such thing as a spirit-filled Christian who neglects the study of the word of God. There is no such thing as a spirit-filled church that does not give itself continually and steadfastly to the study of sacred scripture. The first sign of a spirit-filled Church is one in which the spirit-filled people do not flee from Scripture and seek a substitute for it, but are driven to it to have their spiritual lives rooted and grounded in the Word of God. So the Gospel is the first marker, the starting point of a spirit-filled church. The second marker is being devoted to God's word. And the third marker is intentional fellowship. Being intentional fellowship. Look at verse 42 again. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. To the fellowship. And to the breaking of bread. 
Uh, fellowship with one another and breaking of bread, taking food together, is a common thing among a lot of people. Food have this natural way of relaxing us. Uh, we have we like to enjoy one another company. Uh, we like to eat. And we like to just fellowship, right? One of my elders said this to me. He said, when he came to this church, he said, man, I gained 10 pounds. Because this church can eat. His words, not mine. And that is true. But I think it's more than just fellowshipping on Sunday morning. It has been intentional. Where this young church plant went to each other's homes. They did not have a church building. They went over each other's house. They had house churches where they mingle with each other, talk, carry each other's burdens when someone's was down. It was an intimacy between fellow believers. This is what Paul is, I mean, Luke is recording. That the intentionality of fellowshipping with one another, it brings out all of us, the gifts of the Spirit, that we can be filled by the Spirit together, collectively. Not only that, intentional fellowship, it gives us and elevate us to a higher sphere by the Spirit and devote us to a state of heart. If I'm over your house, you're over my house, you can see how my life is. You see what we do, the good and the bad, vice versa. But at the same time, you will see that we are intentionally walking together and being Christians, living out this sanctified life. And for example, I just uh, came, well, actually yesterday, just came from someone else's house. And they, Saturday morning, or Saturday evening, they had the word, just preaching the word in a park, and that evening, they broke off and went to someone's house just to eat and drink and laugh and play together. So it builds authenticity. It shows that this life, this Christian life, is authentic. There's a bit difference. Coming to church and fellowshipping is good and it's great. I encourage it. I desire us to continue to do it. But throughout the week... That is what it, we should be striving for. Intentionally fellowshipping with each other. Because the Jewish church, this young church plant, in Acts chapter 2, that is what they did. They went to house to house, week by week, day by day, encouraging, admonishing one another. You can do this. Brother, I understand. You can do this. Let's pray right now. Let's have, let's go out to eat. They were intentional. 
The fourth marker of a spirit-filled church is prayer. Prayer. What do you think this particular young church plant was praying about? I can only imagine at, after hearing the gospel and seeing the miraculous signs that was being preached, I mean, being done by the apostles, that they wanted to pray for another opportunity. They wanted to have that opportunity to be done again. For example, if you turn, turn in your Bibles to Colossians, Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. This is what I imagine this young church plant was praying about. It says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of of Christ to declare the mystery of Christ. On the day of Pentecost, that was expected by the prophet Joel. He prophesied that that would happen. And then it occurred. And once it occurred, they saw the ministry, they saw what was going to take place, and they saw the opportunity. Not only that, when Paul, on his first, second, and third missionary trips, he always was eager to share the gospel. If it was in Ephesus, or Thessalonica, or Colossia, he wanted the opportunity for the gospel to continue to go forth. So I can only imagine that this young church plant wanted their, the tentacles of the gospel to extend to the ends of the earth. So this is a marker. This is a marker that shows us what it means to be a spirit-filled church. The fifth marker of a spirit-filled church is godly fear. Turn back to Acts chapter 2 and look at verse 43. Godly fear. Verse 43 says, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. For the sake of clarification, this word awe, it means fear. It's translated as awe in our English Standard Version. But the Greek word is phobos. That literally means fear. Imagine this young church seeing miraculous things being done through the hands of the apostles. And as they're looking and, and grasping the reality of what is being done, and 
all fearing amazement came upon them. They started to revere God even more. Godly fear is an indicator of what a spirit-filled church is. Because if a church is not fearing God, that is a dangerous place for a church to be. They don't have any sense of the condemnation a pastor can bring upon a church. If a leadership does not feel God, and the leadership thinks it's okay to for them to have adultery uh, or fornication outside of the bounds of marriage, that's a lack of fear. If they fear as if cheating people out of their money with their ties, that is a lack of fear of God. But not this young church plant. This young church plant understood that if they crossed the line with God, it was dangerous. They had an all reverence for God. I heard a story about a young, well, an old preacher by the name of Warner Cantler preaching to a large audience. He used the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Everybody knows this story where Ananias and Sapphira lied to God and they were struck dead. So the, young, so the old preacher said, God does not strike people dead like they're used to. If he did, where would I be? The congregation laughed and snickered. So he responded, he said, I know where I would be. I would, speaking, I would speak, be preaching to an empty church. But uh, he will be preaching to an empty church. Turn to that story. Turn to Acts chapter 5, and we will read it. This is when. Ananias and Sapphira, they lied about selling their property, although they had every right not to sell it. It says in Acts chapter 5, verse 1, But a man named Ananias and Sapphira sold a piece of their property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds, and brought only a part of it, and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not return to, uh, not, did it not remain your own? After, and after it was sold, was it not your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived in this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who, were, who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in and not knowing what had, what had happened, 
And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Before the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young man came and found her dead and carried her out and buried her aside, her husband, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Great fear. Now jump down to Acts chapter 5 verse 13. Well, we can read verse 12 and 13. It says, verse 12, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. Verse 13, None of the rest dared join them, but they, the people held them in high esteem. Held them in high esteem. The point of this particular story is that they understood what happened to Ananias and Sapphira? So they didn't want to have any dealings with that church. That is why they dared not to join them. It was a great fear. An all reverence fear for God. For Turn back to Acts chapter 2, verse 2, verse, two, verse 44 through 30, uh, 45. And we will see another marker of a spirit-filled church, and that is commonality. Commonality. It says in verse 44, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing their proceeds to all as any had need. The word of God tells us to have one mind, to be of one body and one accord. A young church plant such as this, they had all things in common. And the ideal that Luke is giving us is that the Holy Spirit was the one controlling, while well, they were being submissive to the Holy Spirit, and as the Holy Spirit was been showing them what they shall do, they move in one accord. Amen? Amen. Um, one commentator said it this way. The Jewish believers saw the importance of selling their possessions to fellow believers and voluntarily giving their possession away to the church so that the church may distribute the proceeds to those who were in need. Two reasons why this is important. One, they wanted to be their own financial institution. They saw the importance for the church to take care of their own people, not the government. This is not a social gospel. The second is the responsibility of the church to take, take care of the poor. It is what the church was established to do. It is to provide financially and provide food for their own 
people and the people of the community as the descendant outreach. Many um, Jewish Christians of this particular time were poor, destitute. When their husband died, they needed help and needed assistance from their brothers and sisters. So when a complaint came for someone, for the apostles to choose deacons, they chose seven deacons to take care of the widowers. Because the apostles felt as if it wasn't worthy of them, to a lesser degree, to serve tables. So they chose Stephen and amongst other people. So, with this particular story, it is important to see when they serve the tables of their widowers or widows, they saw the importance of taking care of their needs. They had everything in common. Not only that, I myself is a benefactor of your giving. Trust me. Before Crystal and I came up here, two broke college students with nothing in the bank, it would have been a hard time for us to do ministry. But all of us had one mind, been of one accord, and one spirit. But the problem is, is sometimes we're not. Or any other church may not be of one accord. For example, in Galatians chapter 2, verse 11 through 14, it tells the story of Paul and Peter clashing on an issue where Peter felt embarrassed to be around the Gentile Christians. So Paul opposed Peter to his face. Telling Peter that it wasn't right. Turn there. Turn to Galatians chapter 2, verse 11 through 14. There's just say amen. All right. It says in verse 11, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically among, along with him. So that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? This is when Peter came to the Gentiles and he had, well, he felt embarrassed being around them when the circumcision party came around and said, well, why are you with them? That is not showing commonality. 
That is not being of one accord or one mind in Christ. And this is why Paul opposed Peter. Another marker, verses 46, Acts chapter 2, verses 46 through 47. A spirit-filled church gathers corporately together. A spirit-filled church gathers corporately together. We see that in verse 46 through 47, that public worship was prominent in their day. They attended not only going to house to house to worship with each other, but they attended the temple that was still there. They wanted to continue their Jewish customs. And this is very important. For example, if we have a, well, any, not even us, there's a lot of churches in Akron and around the world that have multi-satellite churches um, where you hear and see a flat screen and look at the preacher. Here's the difference between this type of model. It takes away the accountability. If a pastor is in error, how can a congregation bring up charges against that pastor if they're just listening to him on a flat screen TV? And what about the elders of that church? So corporate worship is collectively been together in one place. The model for every church plant that is in scripture that I have found is that when Paul planted a church, he built up leaders, allowed leaders to be governed, the governing board of that particular church, and he went on and repeated the process. Where the church and the elders and the leaders were accountable together, where they worshiped together. So a multi-satellite church, you won't not find this in scripture per se. Um, I'm sure many pastors do it. But the fact is, they carry each other's burden. And lastly, praising God, verse 47 in Acts chapter 2. They praising God. It says that they praise God, and this is an indicator of a spirit-filled church. Because in Acts chapter 5, it says that we should sing hymns and spiritual songs, making melody to one another. I've been a spirit-filled church. Like, for example, when we pray on Wednesday night, I would love when one of my elders, they sing. They sing a joyous song. And it moves me. There is a difference between just singing corporately than singing collectively at each other. A bit difference. It enriches one another, encourage one another, admonish each other in spiritual songs. Jesus saw hymns with his disciples. Paul and Silas, when they was in prison, saw a melodious song together while they were in prison, and the prison cell was broken out because God saw it was fitting to do so. 
Sister Spiritfield Church. To come to a close, I would like to leave you with this poem. It is called The Perfect Church. I think that, it says, I think that I shall never see a church that is all it ought to be. A church whose members never stray beyond the straight and narrow way. A church that has no empty pews, whose pastor never has the blues. A church whose deacons always deek, and none is proud and all are meek. Or gossips and gossips never peddle lies or make complaints or criticize. Where all are always sweet and kind and all to others fault are blind. Such perfect church there may be, but none of them are known to me. But still we'll work and pray and plan to make our own the best we can. To come to a close I wanted you to ask yourself, are we a spirit-filled church? Do these markers identify us? Are we collectively worshiping together? Are we admonishing each other in each other's homes, fellowshipping with each other? Are we praying for each other on a daily basis? I think you can decide for yourself. If we're not a spirit-filled church, I'm sure we can strive to be one. Amen? Amen. Let's come to... Let's pray. Our Father...